Hey, institutionalized listeners. This week's episode is from a little bit back in our archives. As you clear in the introduction, it's from the first time Aaron got COVID. Also, my kid got COVID. But we considered trimming all that out and cutting a couple of other references, but we decided it was too much of the episode to remove and make sound timely. At the same time, we really liked this conversation, so we wanted to bring it to you in full. So just keep in mind that uh, this week's episode is a little bit of a blast from the past, we think still very topical. Before we get to the show, let's go to a quick word for our sponsors, and then we hope you'll enjoy. From the grocery store to the gas station, working families are getting hammered by rising prices. But instead of focusing on inflation, Congress is pushing anti-innovation legislation that will impose more financial burdens on working people and seniors. Their misguided agenda could cost public pension plans $109 billion. Teachers, firefighters, and nurses would pay the heaviest price. Congress needs to focus on inflation and leave American workers alone. Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about America's institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Van Lehman, follow the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor at City Journal. I am Aaron Severium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. Aaron, as always, how are you doing today? Charles, I did everything right. I wore N100 masks to the gym. He did. I didn't see anyone for weeks. Also true. And I still got COVID. So I am at home recovering. It's like a mild scratchy throat at the moment. Hopefully it stays that way. I guess, you know, I prayed to the science gods. I, I, I asked Fauci not to let me get COVID. I watched Andrew Cuomo. Somehow all of these very scientific interventions did not prevent me from getting COVID. But this is like, I, I, I told my wife last night, because uh, Aaron messaged me and said, oh, I have COVID. So if I have a scratchy voice on the podcast tomorrow, that's why. And I told my wife, and I was like, you know, this is how you know the pandemic is over. Because when, when the like the like COVID hockeyest person I know personally is like, yeah, COVID. Oh, well, such is life. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Yeah. No, I mean, it's endemic. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to bury him. It's endemic. I don't want to, I don't want to speak too soon. But I, I mean, it does seem to me that if you've been boosted, from what I'm hearing anecdotally, like so far, my experience tracks with other people who say it was like a mild cold, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it I like it worse, but I, my, my, my kid has it right now. We took him into the doctor and the doctor said, oh, you should wear a mask around him. And I wanted to say like, have you interacted with a toddler in your life? Yeah. Like he is, he's sitting on my lap, he's sneezing and drooling. And I'm just like, I mean, no, I mean, did you, did you tell I, the doctor? I will get the disease he gets. I mean, did you, did you tell the doctor to fuck, like, go fuck himself. I mean, no, cause we'd been in the, cause we'd been in the room for like four hours and it was too hot and he was throwing a fit and I was like, I'm going to get out of here. Uh, <laughs> so. All right. Well, well, speaking so of COVID. Anyway. So yeah, speaking of COVID today, we're going to be talking about the persistence of COVID restrictions and in particular, kind of the persistence of irrational restrictions that don't seem to have much evidence behind them. You know, obviously as we record this, vaccines are abundant, treatments are improving, and in all but the most vulnerable people, COVID really poses no more, no more risk than the seasonal flu. But colleges are still shutting students in their rooms, preventing them from dining outdoors. We have teachers unions shutting schools. Maybe by the time this episode releases, the regime will be you know a little less severe and Omicron will have collapsed. But for now, you know, early January, mask mandates are being reimposed. In a few schools, five-year-olds are being forced to wear N95s. I mean, Charles, you know, talk to us a little more about 
the facts here and what what what's your take on all of this? Yeah, you know, I I I I I think that you and I have both been, I would say, more hawkish than the average person on the right, and less hawkish than at least some substantial subset of the left. But sort of perfectly happy to embrace curb restrictions where we think they're efficacious. And what's what's interesting to me, what's interesting to you, I think, is that there's there's clearly a, a substrat of the population, many of whom are in influential bureaucratic positions, who like still see COVID zero as a realistic policy goal, still believe that endemic COVID must be avoided at all costs because the the sort of human life costs are are intolerable. The 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 human suffering costs are intolerable, even after vaccination, even after effective medical interventions, even after we're able to dramatically reduce the severity of the illness. You know, I think I, I think there are lots of different things that are going on here. One of the sort of features that I'm constantly interested in the show is sort of the sort of the, the the ways in which bureaucracies construct and then protect themselves. There's sort of an obvious fashion effect here. And this is true everywhere. Once you set up an, a bureaucracy and infrastructure to solve an architecture to solve a problem, you create a host of incentives that uh, encourage that bureaucracy to self-perpetuate, right? It has it has its own self-interested heart. And and you know I think I think in the case of an organization like teachers unions, there's a there's an obvious strong reason to want to emphasize the harms and dangers of COVID because it benefits teachers to be able to work less. That's that's sort of the goal of teacher unions. But I think more generally, there's a there's a public health apparatus that has been enormously empowered over the past year, agnostic to whether or not it has been good. I think it's been good and bad, but national has been enormously empowered, and it will have a natural selfish motive to be to hold to hold tight to the power it's been handed. Right. And so the thing I want to sort of push in this conversation, and we'll bring in our guest in just a minute, but it's it's similar to what you said, Charles, but but another aspect of it. And that's that bureaucracies often look at concrete, quantifiable metrics like cases, like hospitalizations, like deaths, and make policy based on what they can see. We've brought this up on the show before, but you know, this goes back to James C. Scott's theory of legibility that states need to come up with ways to sort of see their populations, to quantify them in order to make policy. And one implication of that vis-a-vis COVID is that it's, you know, bureaucracies have a kind of natural bias to look at what they can see and to not look at or to not really factor in intangible or or unquantifiable costs that they can't. And when you sort of apply that asymmetry to cost-benefit analyses, I think what happens is you just get a bias in favor. You tend to exaggerate the costs, or at least you tend to under underestimate, or you, you tend to exaggerate the benefits of certain public health metrics based on your kind of sense of what they'll what they're being put in place to stop. And you tend to kind of underestimate the costs, say in terms of freedom or happiness, or eudaimonia, or human flourishing. And I think that that asymmetry between the kind of legible threat of COVID and the intangible threat of COVID restrictions to human flourishing explains a lot. But we are very curious to see what our guest has to say about all of this. Charles, do you want to introduce him? Yeah. So our guest today is Jeff Schellenberger. He's a senior lecturer at NYU's expository writing program. He runs a podcast slash blog slash content platform, content mine called Outsider Theory. Um, Jeff's written many thoughtful essays and Twitter threads on COVID. He's what you might call a critic of the COVID regime, although thoughtful one. Jeff, thank you for joining us on Institutionalized. Thanks for having me. So 
to, to start with a, a kind of maybe provocative question, where are we in the COVID regime life cycle? Are we at Stalin? Are we at Brezhnev? Or are we at Gorbachev near the end? Hmm. So, I mean, I think that's, there's a kind of fragmentation and fracturing of the sort of institutional as well as geographical reality around this. So I, I don't think there's a, a clear overall picture, except that there's a, a sort of a fracture. I mean, I, I described it as a biopolitical balkanization recently, that they're really what you had. And we, you know, we've been seeing this for a while. You know, the obvious sort of DeSantis model in Florida versus, you know, what people were doing in different blue states. But I think that's also kind of ramified into, you know, differences on the basis of whether you're inside or outside of some institution, what, you know, indeed, I would say what neighborhood you're in, you know, in my daily experience affects, you know, the the sort of presence or absence of these kinds of expectations and restrictions. So I, I think we're at a very confusing moment. It it definitely feels Brezhnevian in that, you know, within the institutional spaces and sort of geographic locations that are most that are most sort of beholden to the the strictest interventions. I I do find there's a general sense of you know we're reaching a kind of 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 moment where more and more people are able to see that this shit doesn't really do anything and this is largely pointless and theatrical and yet the whole thing kind of keeps chugging along and there's i think you know going back to your points about the sort of self-perpetuating nature of of bureaucracies you know we've seen this whole new bureaucratic apparatus spring up i mean like one example was i think michael tracy was pointing out like in the credits of the new curb your enthusiasm season there is this kind of you know maybe 10 or 15 positions that all had to do with covid management so so we have all these mini bureaucracies that have sprung up in specific places you know, whether they're school districts, universities, cultural institutions that are are essentially now in the position of, you know, I, I mean, they're they're biased towards the things that they're sort of contractually obligated to be biased towards. But at the same time, they're also biased towards, I suppose, perpetuating their own existence and keeping their jobs. So, you know, I, I think that's that's part of the picture, but what interests me is partly how it's so localized, how it, you know, it, it's, which, which obviously is nonsensical from an actual public health point of view. You know, if, if, if you want to have public health policies, they, they can't be done at the level of like an institution that encompasses a few hundred or a few thousand people. It's just, I mean, I, I could explain why I think there is a sort of rationale for that, but it's so it's it's a completely bizarro moment in that in that regard. It's it's almost like a kind of travesty or parody of of a sort of public health regime. <laughs> so 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 one question, you know, we have this sort of culture war around these policies now, which, as you say, many of them don't even seem to work. Why do you think it is that some policies like masks have become so polarized and others like, say, introducing better filtration systems in schools really haven't been? Or at least there doesn't seem to be as much of a kind of media culture war around certain policies or for that matter, certain drugs like fluvoxamine. No one really 
you know, debates that one, even though it seems to work, but then they do debate ivermectin and they do debate vaccines. What explains kind of the difference in levels of polarization between different policies and interventions? Yeah. So, I mean, something I still haven't, you know, I, I, I have an explanation that covers part of this. The way that there's been a bias against the importance of treatment has been interesting to me that, you know, obviously you had all of the kind. This of, is the fight about Regneron the, or monoclonal yeah, antibody. Exactly. Yeah. That, mm. that you know, th- th- there's been a, a sort of tendency among the public health establishment, as well as the sort of left side of the political spectrum, you know, which is largely identified with the public health establishment, that, that there's been a kind of de-emphasizing of those things. And then oddly, they've become almost this kind of countercultural expression, you know, <laughs> things like ivermectin then then become this kind of like oddly countercultural expression of the sort of dissident section of the population where you, you know, you're you're sort of in part like sticking it to the man by taking these drugs that are not, you know, officially approved. So there's something there's something odd about that that I don't know if I have like a full answer for. But as far as say, you know, comparing ventilation to masking, I mean, so on one hand, you know, my view that's sort of informed by certain anthropological perspectives is that you know, as soon as you deal with ideas of contagion and purity, you're you're kind of falling back into these very, you know, these very ancient and sort of deeply hardwired sensibilities that that you know. I think if you if you look at, for example, a, a classic study like Purity and Danger by the anthropologist Mary Douglas, you know that there's this this way the cultures generate these purity regimes, right? That are about um, purifying certain spaces. And, you know, there are ways that that, interestingly, that mentality kind of continues in the world of of modern science in various ways. But without getting too much into that, you know, my sense is that you have I, this, I, you have I, this, I don't want to ask yeah. you to get into that. Yeah. But, okay, like, sure. It, 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 it express yeah. the thought and then we'll come back to that because I think there's an issue mm-hmm. there about how we think about how we humans think about disease. But go, go yeah. to your thought. Right. So, I mean, you know, roughly part of what I'd say is that, you know, I I really think about there being a continuity between the sort of Trump panic and the COVID panic, because I think Trump was perceived and experienced as himself this kind of vector of this dangerous contagion, you know, by by essentially the kind of liberal governing elite and and those who are sort of aligned with them. And so it, it made sense that he became identified as this kind of you know, bringer of the plague, right? And so on one hand, you had kind of this idea that by by expelling him from, you know, the public platforms, you could kind of cleanse and purify the realm, right? In, in almost some kind of primitive mythical sense. Um, and yet it didn't quite work, right? The, the contagion lingers. And so I think that's part of why there's such a a psychological attachment to these rituals of purification on the part of the very people who are most kind of panicked and <clears throat> unnerved throughout the past five or six years by the by the Trump phenomenon. So I think there's a continuity there. But, you know, as far as something like masks go, you know, they they have a sort of intuitive logic of of enclosing the bot, you know, and this if you read sort of Douglas's work, you know, there there's this idea of the body as this sort of sanctum that needs to be that needs to be preserved from these sort of external contagions. 
And so, you know, that has a sort of powerful logic, which is is manifested in, you know, the idea that if you if you put up some kind of barrier, then it's it's creating a sort of possibility of of avoiding contamination of avoiding contamination. So it has this ritualized logic. Now, I would say that the other thing we'd have to add to this is that, you know, we could imagine a situation in which something like, you know, air purifiers or whatever could be part of this kind of regime in which you want to, you know, ensure this generalized purity. But I think the the thing the masks also do is individualize. And so what they what they allow you to do is on one hand, you know, enact this kind of purity ritual as an individual, you know, which is which is a sort of much more modern version of it. And and to kind of, you know, enact and perform your sort of identification with this larger regime that is supposedly what is going to purify and cleanse the the society as a whole so it and you know i mean you you literally hear you see people saying also that like they keep wearing a mask because they don't want people to think they're a republican or so like you you know there are numerous posts of people saying this kind of stuff right and so you know, it's it's also a it's just a, you know it's semiotically it's a it's a clear way of sing, signaling a kind of affiliation which has this kind of moral weight attached to it, right? Because it it means that you're you're performing you're you're constantly performing the ritual which you know ensures the preservation of 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 purity and prevention of contamination. Right. Yeah. So so I. I, I think that's I think that's a really interesting model that, you know, much of the decision making that we do about curve restrictions has much more to is 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 much more about managing purity, sickness, desecration on sort of a symbolic level than it is on a you know, on a uh, an actually managing number of illnesses or cases or death. I guess I wonder I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about the way in which what, why why there's a disconnect why people tend to prefer that model you know my my intuition is that we should think about what what policy interventions minimize death but i think it's probably right that anthropologically speaking people are not actually that rational so 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 why does that you know why does that model dominate policy why does the model you're talking about dominate policy making yeah that's a good question i mean i wrote something recently about i i mean i i was trying to contrast this sort of obama era affiliation of the sort of of the White House and the sort of Democratic leadership with this sort of nudge theory, right, which is this sort of um, particular model of a kind of technocratic governance, right, that comes out of Cass Sunstein, who is closely associated with Obama. They had been colleagues and knew each other very well, and Sunstein did serve in the administration. So, you know, what, what was interesting about that is that it really did, you know, I mean, it, there are many criticisms to be made of nudge theory, but it, it did emphasize this idea of, you know, you, you have to base all these interventions on sort of measurable outcomes, right? And an intervention is only as good as the the outcomes that it can measurably generate, right? And so one thing that I, that I think has been remarkable is seeing how uh, incurious the you know public health authorities appear to be about just kind of measuring what works and what doesn't and so you know part of me is inclined to read this as a you know public health authorities have a sort of set of political alignments and i think they're you know it, i mean it's it's true that at least sort of symbolically they're 
their ability to exert authority was was challenged during the Trump era, right? I'm I'm not sure that I, I don't think Trump sort of, you know, we could think of like this, you know, Steve Bannon's thing about the deconstruction of the administrative state and so on. Now, I don't really think much of that actually happened, yeah. but nevertheless, it did put them on the defensive. And so, you know, I I think that the result is that they've they've kind of gone from this idea that you know you you sort of operate behind the scenes and sort of tinker around the edges of things and you know your your tinkering allows you to kind of study outcomes and then you know modify the policies accordingly i mean right. that's roughly speaking so this much more aggressive and assertive and kind of moralizing role right and so what what happens is that there becomes there you know and and the way i i see kind of what you asked about before, you know, there's really a profound incuriosity about measuring outcomes as far as I can tell. And I think that's partly because the policies are themselves, again, identified with this kind of fundamentally moral drive towards purity. And so then there becomes a short circuit. I mean, so what, what then happens is you have this individualization again. So the, the policy is in a way, are no longer something that you measure the outcomes of and adjust because the policies are expressions of moral goodness and purity. And then when they fail to produce the outcomes that they're sold as producing, the fault of that falls on the people who disobey them, right? And so then, then, you know, the, 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 I mean, and this is another reason why this regime becomes you know, completely absolved of any responsibility for the policies that it institutes, because it can simply say, well, they would have worked had the bad people not disobeyed us. Right. And right. It, well, it, yeah. Well, I was going to say, it, it seems like there's kind of in a, in a symmetry here to, to connect it back to something I said earlier, which is they, they, are, they are very concerned with measuring outcomes when it comes to triggering policies, right? They say, ah, but the cases are high, you know, or hospitalizations are rising, therefore we must do X. But then when it comes to evaluating whether X actually had its intended efficacy, that concern for legible outcomes just totally goes out the window. So it's as if they've sort of synthesized this very kind of technocratic mindset when it comes to deciding whether to impose restrictions with this almost ritualistic, anti-technocratic, atheistic mindset. The, 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 when it comes to you're always post hoc, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, it's like, like it's 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 a combination of kind of hyper technocracy when it comes to do we impose this, and then total like irrationality when it comes to do we do this again or do we conclude that this actually worked? Right, and that's why it you know increasingly resembles this kind of you know situation where you have a a ritual regime that is, you know, failing to accomplish that, you know, I mean, just think about, you know, plagues in ancient times, right? I mean, they, they led to all sorts of interesting, interestingly parallel situations, including, you know, things like scapegoating. Now, this is something that, interestingly, people intuitively recognize the potential for this right at the beginning. And that's why, weirdly, the first response was, you know, you know, among the very people who eventually kind of succumbed to the most extreme panic, the, the first response was actually that this panic is itself more dangerous. I mean, the, you know, the, like there was literally a New York Times headline that I think was like, you know, coronavirus panic is worse than the virus or something like that. Right. But right. the idea it, it, that it was, it was responding it was, to me and all of my right wing friends freaking right. out. 
Rate racism is the real right. Virus. Exactly. Yeah. And then, but but the specific concern, which I think does have a sort of logic, is that you know if if we if this virus arrives and we identify it with China, then it will produce the scapegoating of of Chinese mm-hmm. people, right? And historically, this is true, right? Like moments of plague have generated exactly this sort of thing. So, and then you know, in a more sort of, I mean, and, and that's like been a spontaneous phenomenon that you can observe going back to ancient times. And so again, it's this logic of purgation, right? That you have to find the source of the contagion and expel it, right? And then kind of purify and cleanse the the community, which is the the sort of larger social body of this contagion. And then this can also take ritualized forms, right? Mm. So, you know, the the sort of ritualized scaling up of that kind of spontaneous thing that you saw in ancient times was sacrifice, right? That you would you would basically sacrifice someone to try to get rid of the plague. Now, if it didn't work, then you just keep sacrificing more and more, right? So, you know, th- this this kind of kind of ritualized logic is I think very continuous with what we've been seeing and yeah. I think again it's part of why this can't really fail. It can only it can only be failed, right? And um, I mean, one thing you say there that I think is worth picking up on, you know, because there's this natural scapegoat dynamic and drive to purge the sort of unclean that sounds a bit like the rhetoric we've heard from the biden administration after january 6th about domestic terrorism and we were hearing even before january 6th about ah there's these white nationalist domestic terrorists you know who just so happen to be kind of demographically identified with the group that we imagine is the most insouciant towards covid restrictions this sounds cynical, but I mean, do you think there's anything here that COVID kind of provided a pretext to kind of vilify as unclean precisely the people that sort of, you know, establishment liberalism already kind of wanted to vilify as bad and unclean? And this just provided a pretext for doing more of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's been going on all the time. You know, what I re- I remember even, you know, when there were these like an- early anti-lockdown protests, I'm pretty sure there were people saying that those people were terrorists simply by virtue of, you know, being outside and hence spreading COVID, right? And and I think I've I've seen various people claiming that I don't know, like being out and about without a mask is a form of terror. It's like bioterrorism or something. Unless you're protesting so, on behalf of Black Lives Matter, right? Of course, yeah. But you know, it's it's definitely a kind of you know. Again, I think there's just this deep kind of unconscious intuitive logic that connects this sense of a kind of moral pollution that, you know, a certain sector of the population associated with the Trump presidency and the and and the way that then that kind of that kind of particular type of fear, you know, then is sort of transferred over to COVID. And and I think Trump in some sense becomes this kind of, you know, sort of Oedipus-like sort of scapegoat king who then, you know, because the other thing I've been interested in is like the the intuitive associations between sort of literal viral contagion and viral information contagion. So that, you know, I mean, to me, like something that was under remarked in 2020 was that some of the earliest kind of moments at which the, the digital platforms really started 
becoming much more heavy handed was was about COVID stuff, right? And the 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 logic there was sort of that if you allowed this information to spread, you were directly allowing the virus itself to spread, mm. right? And so then that you know kind of linked up with the the danger, you know, that that ultimately led to the the sort of banishment of Trump from these platforms, but. You know, I, I would say that again functioned as this kind of ineffective sacrifice, right? That that seemed to initially provide some sort of relief and sense of a sense of of resolution through this kind of purgation. But you know, gradually the the efficacy of that intervention sort of waned, and so in a sense, it sort of parallels all of these other kinds of public health interventions. Yeah, I mean, so, so, so part of what's interesting, I, I, I talked in the start of the conversation about this ratchet phenomenon. One of my concerns, you know, I, I, I waffle on sort of some marginal COVID policies. So, for example, I waffle a lot on uh, vaccine mandates and their efficacy and the trade-offs in terms of power versus, as, as Aaron alluded to, the tangibles versus the intangibles. So my greatest concern about vaccine mandates is that, you know, once, once you create a highly publicly salient instance of compulsion in the name of the greater good of this sort, it's it's really hard to undo it because the justification for lots of other interventions. This is a, A, this is sort of what I'm thinking about in this con- conversation, but B, I really want to ask you about sort of where this more active or aggressive purgative regime goes. It seems like what you've been, you know, what you said previously is that there, there was this sort of nudge paradigm where where sort of those in Scott's liberal elite was able to reinforce its power very lightly. It could have a light touch. Both Trump and also I think COVID threatened that status quo and they responded with a much more aggressive model for preserving their power. Once you've sort of opened that Pandora's box, what happens next? Do you go, you know, let's imagine that we've decided COVID, we, you know, Joe Biden finally gives up on COVID. Uh, it's endemic. In five years, has this gone back in the box? So do we return to a sort of more nudge-oriented regime? Or do we have a much more aggressive purgative regime going forward for a variety of such racism, global warming, et cetera, the animating issues of the left today? Question mark. Right. Well, yeah, it's clear to me that, you know, in some sense, Biden, you know, his his current approach seems to suggest that he's you know, despite what I was saying about the kind of broader incuriosity, you know, he he's largely kind of retreated in various ways from, you know, attempting to implement the, the most aggressive kind of regime of COVID measures. And I think, you know, that that is a kind of a, a sort of tacit acknowledgement of failure. But, you know, I think, again, there's there's a kind of so, I mean, on one hand, you know, if we go back to nudge, you know, they, they, they explicitly, like Sunstein and Thaler, like explicitly sort of denounced mandates, right, as, as a bad sort of policy, right? And, and part of the reason was that, you know, that they, they would produce backlashes that might be ultimately counterproductive, right? Right. So, so, as far, so as far as the question about that goes, you know, the thing I found, you know, and the thing I realized and found frustrating was like, you know, it would seem to me from a public health management point of view, the only thing that should interest you about mandates is whether it produces the the desired outcome better than, you know, some other kind of more nudgy approach or whatever, right? Like when New York was sort of giving people $100 to get vaccinated or something like that. So, but, you know, as far as I could tell, there wasn't very much interest in pursuing that because the mandate had this kind of moral force behind it. And also allowed for the continued scapegoating of those who refuse the mandate. So it, 
it it functioned that in that for that kind of politics. So I do think it, <clears throat> you know, on one hand, it's you know, change the nature of certain kinds of sort of technocratic governance in ways that are probably, if not irreversible, will be difficult to walk back. And, you know, it's also done, I would say, sort of reputational damage to to these authorities to be so strongly identified with a very specific, you know, set of political agendas and also the way that, you know, people who are within the sort of public health world who were objected who were objecting to these approaches were demonized and, you know, essentially ostracized. So I think all that is extremely damaging. And I don't know, you know, it, to me, it just seems in a sense of a piece of like a larger tendency towards the kind of discrediting of various institutions and authorities. And I don't, you know, to me, that just seems like a larger set of tendencies that, you know, is, is probably not going to, is not going to go anywhere. But, you know, I would say, again, that there's probably going to be drastic swings, you know, back and forth where where there's, you know, of the sort we've seen with the Biden administration, where I think it, you know, largely tried to pursue this very aggressive tack for much of last year and then more recently kind of retreated because of the sort of backlashes that proved counterproductive. So I'm I'm guessing that there is going to be a kind of a swinging back and forth between, you know, as we're already seeing, but between this kind of, again, you know, sort of morally tyrannical approach and then, you know, various kinds of retreats from it. And, right. you know, beyond that, as far as like, you know, for example, censorship and the sort of information regime, which I think is linked to all of this in the way I described you know, to me, that's that's just kind of the path we've gone down, and I don't I don't really see that that sort of more censorious model of of the sort of information ecosystem changing. And instead, what I see is a greater kind of splintering and disaggregation, which which means that you know interesting things will happen as a result of that. But you know, it also it also has caused definite harms. So, so so I think just sort of a last question before we sum up the thrust of everything you've been saying one thrust is that these ostensibly apolitical technocratic institutions aren't really apolitical at all and this guidance is infused with a moralizing fervor that is the furthest thing you could imagine from true values neutral sunstein like technocracy i think that raises a, a deeper question of whether a, there's any way to quote unquote depoliticize public health, and B, whether that's even possible or desirable. Like, do you think that we could have, in theory, a less political public health regime that was more evidence based, or is that ambition just kind of predicated on a category error? And is the solution to actually just accept that this stuff is inherently political and to almost just make more explicit and visible the political nature of any public health regime. Yeah, I I would definitely argue for the latter. And, you know, even, you know, I would say it's, I, I don't want to come across as sort of idealizing or being nostalgic for the more, the Sunsteinian model, which I think, you know, in many ways kind of led to the current model, even though it, it's, you know, the current model seems to be opposed to it, you know, it, in part because of it, you know, be, because it's, it, 
it attempted to, you know, it, it, it was very much this kind of anti, you know, I, I think Sunstein, you know, was kind of one of the last gasps of this kind of post-Cold War, you know, sort of anti-political or post-political technocracy, I would say post-political, right? And so this idea that, you know, instead of having sort of genuine political antagonisms, you could just have a government that, that you know, would do most of its its governing work kind of behind the scenes by just kind of tinkering with outcomes. And and this was always a sort of delusional idea, I would say, right? And and the fact that it was sort of, you know, forced to abandon that approach by the sort of, you know, inchoate populist threats that it faced, you know, around five or six years ago is not is not accidental, right? So, you know, I think we're at this point just in a situation where we have to acknowledge, yeah, that that there is no sort of apolitical or or post-political reality that we we can or should aspire to. <clears throat> now, you know, what that works out to in practice, I I don't I don't know that I have a very good response, but you know, it's it's not it's it's just not a sort of you know, I I think it's the idea that this was ever possible was was linked to this kind of you know notion of a sort of waning political antagonism particularly in the sort of 90s and and aughts that you know has been challenged in all sorts of ways and so you know that there's you know on one hand a sort of collapse of that model and now there are just sort of different alternative approaches you know, vying for dominance and and achieving it on more local levels. And I don't know, you know, where where exactly we go from here. But you know that, that there's no point in sort of aspiring to or idealizing some prior moment of a more sort of apolitical technocratic regime. Well, I think that's about all the time we have, uh, Charles. What's been your big Takeaway yeah. No, I mean, I think I, I, I think I, I find Jeff Framework really persuasive insofar as, you know, I think a, a sort of key conservative insight is that people are the same everywhere all the time that, you know, people, people in the past are not anymore. We, we, we like to believe that people today are more rational than we were in the past. And yet we're subject to the same today. We're subject to the same compulsions, superstitions and human cognitive errors that we were 500 or 1000 or 10,000 years ago. You know, we can maybe build slightly more rational systems, but often we don't. And often politics is infected with precisely that, not even irrationality, but irrationality. It is motivated by concerns parallel to rationality. So, you know, I, I started the conversation talking about the sort of ratchet effect, but I find persuasive just point that much of what is motivating us, the model that's motivating us is this sort of like desire, pur- purgative desire. And that's a fundamental human desire. And you can simultaneously say that COVID regime, particular features of COVID regime make sense from a rational perspective and also acknowledge that that purgative desire is motivating not just individual behavior, but policymaking behavior at scale. Yeah, you know, the way I would put it is the iron cage of rationality, to use Weber's term, has now been hijacked by the various sort of pre-modern anxieties it was created to contain. So you have sort of the infrastructure of dispassionate, ostensibly apolitical technocracy, but it's being run by people who are not apolitical and are not bloodless technocrats. And I think that is a potentially 
dangerous combination because it gives a lot of power to to technocrats who have their own agenda, but it also masks that power and the way in which it's operating. And, you know, I guess my concern as someone who, as Charles said, sort of was ribbing me earlier, you know, that I was like this super hawk on COVID and in many ways have remained that way for, for quite a while in my own personal life, you know, even I, I think, am worried that there's no limiting principle here. And yes, I think the regime is kind of on its way out, at least in its most sort of authoritarian impositions, simply because the American public has had enough and eventually everyone's going to get infected with Omicron. It may lead to less kind of visible, annoying, burdensome micromanagement of our lives. But we've set this thing up. And yeah, I don't really see a limiting principle on it. And I am worried that, no, I don't think climate lockdowns are on the horizon, but, you know, flu lockdowns, who knows? Climate lockdowns totally on the horizon. Yeah, it's gonna that happen. I think is really going to happen. And like, <laughs> I, think that's, I, think it's, I think it's scary. And, you know, a lot of people are, I was skeptical of a, the conservatives at the start who just thought that all the lockdowns were stupid. You know, we didn't know much about the virus, but hate to say it, but I think that they were right to warn about the slippery slope. And in the next few years, I have a feeling we're going to see just how right they were and, and we're not going to like it. So, so with that, uh, to, to close yeah, up, Jeff, what we normally do is we, we do a recommendation. We like to uh, recommend things to our, to our audience that they can be after pros. This is a good opportunity for you to plug your work. We'll give you some other things. We'll give you a second to think, well, we plug things. Aaron, do you have anything today? Yeah. So when I got my third Pfizer booster and I felt actually frankly worse than I feel now with COVID from that, I finished watching The Americans, which is a really good TV show. And I recommend it to everyone, not for any particular reason, except a bit apropos of our discussion today. One of the plots, plot lines involves a biological weapon that is being developed in an American laboratory with substandard security that spies from a hostile foreign power attempt to capture, you know, just, just something to think about in the age of COVID, just something to think about. And <laughs> in, in, in maybe like the bio lab in Kazakhstan. That's the, that's, that's the new thing people are worrying yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my, my plug this week is, is Michael Lewis's The Premonition, which is the, the sort of COVID retrospective nonfiction reporting that I've read that I most enjoyed. It's not perfect. You know, I think Lewis is beholden to the Jordan classes need to bash on Trump for sort of larger silly reasons. And a lot of the, the press material and coverage focused on some of Trump's role in bungling COVID crisis early on. But I think, you know, what I liked about The Premonition, which is, which, which is Lewis's, sorry, it's Michael Lewis, the author of Moneyball, The Big Short, lots of sort of high profile nonfiction reportage. This is his story of a handful of public health experts, people in the public health bureaucracy who saw this coming and wanted to react appropriately. And then all the people who, didn't want to react appropriately, did not want to be aggressive for purely political reasons. I think the whole thing reads quite legibly and compellingly as like an indictment of how we address this kind of problem and a competency to address this kind of problem. So, you know, I think it's, even if it's, I, I don't necessarily agree with some of its conclusions, I think it's, I think it's worth reading. Jeff, did you want to recommend anything to our listeners, either from your own work or, and or elsewhere? Sure. I also was, if it's okay, I wanted to make other one other sort of substantive please, point that I, that I forgot to make earlier. So something that I find extremely odd is that, you know, 
from the beginning, the rationale of lockdowns in particular, but NPIs in general, has been to preserve hospitals. Yet it is almost never broached that, you know, hospital beds are not some kind of like inherently limited natural resource, right? The fact that there are a certain number of hospital beds in a certain place are, you know, an effect of all sorts of decisions made at various levels, right? And so, you know, what's remarkable is that this idea comes up again and again. And I, I was, here's one recommendation, a podcast I enjoy is called Historian Splaining by a writer named Sam Biagetti. And he had a very good 2021 in review podcast where he brought this point up and pointed out that, you know, you can actually show that there were like a, a, a much larger raw number of hospital beds in the United States in the 1970s than there are today. So what is never discussed here is what what led to a significant reduction of the sheer number of hospital beds, even as the population increased significantly. So what I think the larger point of this is, is that, you know, one of the most disturbing things of this entire regime is that it's the perfect proof of a sort of ruling elite that has, you know, arrogated incredible emergency powers to, you know, force us or, or sort of hector us into changing things about the way we live our, our lives in order to supposedly serve these higher social ends. But at the same time, it refuses to take responsibility for situations like relative deficit of hospital beds compared to earlier era, eras of history. So this is a, a ruling elite that is accumulating more and more power, but also is, you know, through its measures and, and, and pronouncements, actively denying any responsibility and trying to shunt that responsibility off onto average citizens. Right. So to me, this is maybe one of the most disturbing things about the whole situation. So that's one recommendation is this episode of, of this show, Historian Explaining, which kind of goes over 2021 in historical perspective, compares it to other crisis moments and aftermaths of crises in American history and, and world history, actually. And, you know, has some interesting kind of prognoses and observations based on those comparisons. So that's one of the podcast episodes I've most listened, I've most enjoyed listening to recently. And it addresses this point I just brought up, you know, as far as my own work, you know, the outsider theory podcast, I, I, I've been proud of some of the episodes I've done recently on COVID related stuff. I'd point particularly to a conversation I had about something that might seem initially, you know, not exactly related, but it's the rise of something called evidence-based medicine in the in the medical profession. And this was a phenomenon that, you know, basically ha happened in the 90s and is now kind of the hegemonic approach to medicine. I had this conversation with a doctor and a public health expert, both of whom chose to be pseudonymous. And both of them essentially argued that the the situation we're in now, particularly as regards the sort of self-discrediting of public health and medicine mm -hmm. during this period has a strong relation to the, the emergence of this model called evidence-based med or this paradigm called evidence-based medicine. So that's a particular episode. And then from a very pers different perspective, I'd point people to my discussion with, and this is an aspect of this whole issue that we haven't been able to get into today, but with the philosopher Fabio Vigi, who has an extremely provocative and you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure, I, I definitely don't buy it 100%, but I think it does offer some 
surprising ways of looking at why lockdowns became this kind of default mode of governance all of a sudden. And he connects it really to, you know, monetary policy and the sort of, you know, ongoing economic crisis that has never really ended that, but that was sort of unleashed in the 2008 moment. And so I think that's, you know, it's, it's at least a surprising and provocative perspective, even if you don't sort of buy all of it. So those are two episodes I'd point people to because I think Lock, they were lockdowns as, lockdowns as neoliberal tools of the neoliberal elite to consolidate yeah. their economic hegemony. Yeah. Right. And, and also to, you know, continue this kind of injection of liquidity into financial markets in particular to sort of prop up this, this kind of bizarre, speculative, like fictional, weightless economic reality that is now sort of the dominant one. So I think that's kind of, you know, two episodes that I think I really, you know, mm-hmm. my, I found guests who offered, you know, perspectives I had not myself encountered before. So point people to this. Thank you again to Jeff for joining us today. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, COVID that you'd like to send our way, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Levin. Aaron is at Aaron Siberium. I think that's all the time that we have. Until next time, I'm Charles Faden Lehman. I'm Aaron Siberium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. Hope you'll join us again. 